It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Thursday, September 10, 2020. On today's episode, Code St. Luke Library's TV and movie librarian, Stephen Tomlinson, is here. He is going to be speaking about the films of Steven Spielberg. This is part one. Part two is coming soon. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hi, everyone. This is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be presenting the first of two parts in a series on Steven Spielberg, one of Hollywood's most important living filmmakers and the director behind such movies as Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, The Color Purple, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies, and so so many more. You know, I think Steven Spielberg's most important contribution to the movies has probably been his insight all the way back in the 1970s that there was an enormous audience to be created if old-style, family-friendly, B-movie fantasy adventure stories were made with a certain A-level craftsmanship, especially when that craftsmanship is enhanced with the latest developments in special effects. All in all, making movies that appeal, I think, to a, a child's sense of wonder in us all. That's really the Spielberg raison d'etre. Now, consider such titles as Raiders of the Lost Ark and the other Indiana Jones movies, Close Encounters, E.T., and Jurassic Park, all fantasy science fiction films to one extent or another. Look also at the films he had a hand in but didn't direct, like the Back to the Future series, Gremlins, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Twister, all from the 80s uh, and the 90s. The storylines were, were the stuff of Saturday afternoon serials and children's television, but the filmmaking was cutting edge, and and it delivered what popular movies had always promised, um, but weren't really providing in the 1970s, I think it's fair to say. They showed us something amazing, perhaps something that we hadn't seen before, and all with all with that sense of wonder that I spoke about. That sense of wonder reflected back to us by the characters in awe of what, of what they are experiencing on screen. That is, that is so characteristic of Spielberg throughout his career. You know, in many ways, we're, we're all still living in the entertainment world that he, that he has helped to create, for better or for worse. I mean, really, the, the omniscient uh, superhero franchises of today, they are really his offspring when you think about it. As has he himself, ironically, in the last 20 years, has become something of a more grounded filmmaker predominantly interested in irony of ironies, more grown-up stories, stories like Lincoln, The Post, and Bridge of Spies. I mean, sure, he's still doing, you know, um, he's still doing those um, those science fiction fantasy adventure films with, uh, you know, a, a child's sense of wonder that he's always done. But in, um, in recent years, there's been a greater emphasis on more grown-up material. And that is something that I will explore uh, more fully in part two of this series. Now, 
Steven Spielberg's earliest critics, um, they had always tended to emphasize his technical virtuosity. If there's one thing Spielberg has always had, even in the films that have not quite worked as well as he might have hoped, that is a degree of technical sophistication that really has always been at the forefront of Hollywood and world filmmaking. Um, and something else that he has always had from his very beginnings, uh, directing episodes of television in the late 1960s as a very young man, and that is a certain, one might say natural, directorial flair. When you watch something that Spielberg has directed, it almost always has a kind of visual signature that identifies it as his own work. And this is something I hope to um, expand upon as I go ahead in, uh, in this series on, on his films. And I won't be discussing his private life. I think it's fair to say that it's, um, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know that much about it, it's fairly mundane. I will be um, specifically speaking about um, the films of Steven Spielberg in this series. But... Um, as I said, Spielberg's earliest critics have um, always tended to emphasize two things, his technical virtuosity and his natural directorial flair. But implicitly or, or even explicitly at times, that acknowledgement has also always come, I think, with the accompanying suggestion that his films certainly in the first decade of his career, that his films have always lacked a certain substance and maturity. Now, I, for one, don't think that's fair, and I will expand upon why I think that is so. Um, but as early as his first theatrical feature film, The Sugarland Express, uh, made in 1974, with um, Goldie Hawn in the lead role, um, he's, he's always had highly laudatory reviews. Um, and Pauline Kael, for one, in her, her very, very prescient review of this film in The New Yorker, had something, I think, very interesting to say that um, pretty much um, other critics would, um, would, would adhere to. Not just in relation to this film, The Sugarland Express, but in the films to come over the next um, couple of decades. Quoting Pauline Kael, he, meaning Steven Spielberg, could be that rarity among directors, a born entertainer, perhaps a new generation's Howard Hawks. In terms of the pleasure that technical assurance gives an audience, this film is one of the most phenomenal excuse me, phenomenal debut films in the history of movies. Wow, that's high praise. That's me, by the way. If there is such a thing as movie sense, Spielberg really has it. But he may be so full of it that he hasn't much else. Pauline Kael, 1974. Writing in The New Yorker in her review of The Sugarland Express. 
And, you know, this kind of backhanded compliment really has dogged Spielberg for years. <laughs> it still does, still does to some extent. That because he has been such a popular entertainer with a very, very, very technical sense of know-how, that he is not necessarily worth taking seriously. I mean, you know, the same might also be said of his contemporary, the writer Stephen King, by where, uh, you know, by way of comparison across the arts. We're talking here about two enormously popular entertainers. But does that necessarily mean they are any less artists? And that's also an idea that I'm going to explore. Now, Kale's use of the phrase movie sense is especially interesting here. What she identified from the very start, basically, of, of Spielberg's theatrical film career, at least, and I think without really spelling it out, is that Spielberg was part of the first generation of filmmakers shaped by the influence of movies, of being a fan of movies himself. Now, why he, while he never went to film school, like so many of his generation did, Steven Spielberg did grow up on movies and brought a love, a very distinctive love of them, to his own filmmaking. And that was definitely not true of filmmakers from earlier generations, who often came from a from theatrical tradition, from a theatrical tradition, excuse me, or were, were often men who considered themselves as little more than unpretentious craftsmen, you know, sometimes or at least claiming not to watch the, their films again or to um, give very much consideration to any deeper meanings that their critics or audiences might find in them. Now, one thing that Kale didn't mention in that review of the Sugarland Express in 1974, I mean, and how could she, is that film's introduction, really, of a theme or motif that would become recurrent in many Spielberg films to come. And that is the theme or motif of a family under threat or a character or characters trying to reestablish or find a sense of home. That's an idea that will reoccur throughout Spielberg's work to come. Now, while, while that idea isn't necessarily true of his next film, with Jaws in 1975, I think it's no exaggeration to say that Spielberg really invented the idea of the summer blockbuster, which of course changed the course of Hollywood history for the last 50 years. I mean, it's still with us today. I mean, not so much in the year of COVID in, in 19, in 2020, but um, I'm, I'm sure if things ever return to normal, we will have many um, summer blockbuster years to come. But before Jaws, summer had always been the season in which the major studios had traditionally released their cheaper, more disreputable genre films. 
the serious films were were left for the fall or the um, the so-called Christmas season. But what Spielberg and the producers behind Jaws did was take what is essentially monster movie material, really. I mean, at its basis, that's what, that's what Jaws is, a monster movie, right? And give it a big budget, an A-listed cast, which monster movies didn't have up until then, really. I mean, there were a few with, um, you know, a few notable exceptions. But mostly that was not the case. And very importantly, what they did, what the studio did, Universal, was put huge marketing behind it. So Jaws really is the first film in which you can you can look at its budget. I forget the figures, um, but I'm sure the marketing budget for Jaws was at least as great as the budget that went into the actual on-location making of the film. Now, the fact that it was, it was also based on a very popular best-selling novel also helped, too. Uh, the novel by Peter Benchley, um, self, the same, same, um, uh, you know, with the same title. It was, it was, it was quite a phenomenon before the movie ever came out. And it's kind of hard to remember or believe that Jaws was really something that was initially thought of at the time as cashing in on that novel, because of course today we think of it as a great classic, um, not only on its own merits in terms of storytelling and film making, but as a film that, as I said, has helped change the course of Hollywood history. But in fact, the box office results for Jaws, the movie, were so sensational that within a few years, it, it really had become the model that inspired the whole Hollywood industry, in which budgets would begin to run wild because the rewards seem so limitless. And in, and in which big summer action pictures to, to mostly would, would, would come to dominate the industry. And they still do. They still do. As I said, summer COVID 2020, notwithstanding. Okay, I want you to recall, if you can, Roy Scheider's character of Chief Brody in Jaws. Do you, do you well remember him? He's, he's, he's the family man, the first heroic everyman that is so typical of Spielberg, whose heroes, often middle-aged dads, uh, who don't often find themselves in complex emotional entanglements. Although that's not always true. You know, it's often been said that the typical Spielberg hero is drawn to discovery. And that's certainly true, especially, I guess, for the first time in this movie, Jaws. The key shot in this film, as in many of his films, certainly in the first half of his career, is the revelation of wonder that he has discovered. Now, just think of those close-ups on Scheider's astonished face, both on the beach in Jaws and on Robert Shaw's boat, as he apprehends the enormity of the task he is up against. 
And that, of course, is finding and killing the great white shark. Another thing fairly characteristic of Spielberg that you can find in Jaws is the open, is in the opening scene. Remember, leaving her drunken boyfriend on the beach, a young skinny dipper goes for a midnight swim only to be attacked by an unseen underwater menace, accompanied by John Williams' unforgettable two-tone score. Remember, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And the occasional point-of-view shark from the vantage point of the shark, no less, which which really well demonstrates the swimmer's complete vulnerability. Remember, this is, at essence, a monster movie. But this scene, this scene is really such a good example of, of Spielberg's facility for shot composition and editing at its most sure-footed. And this is what I mean by his technical virtuosity. In which here the editing rhythms have an instinctive musical quality that is really reflected in John Williams' memorable musical score. And perhaps more than anything else in Jaws, it is this scene that really induces the nightmares if we think back at the film and we think of how vulnerable that swimmer is. And in this scene, I think Spielberg can fairly be compared with one of his heroes, the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock himself, in that he is so masterfully manipulating his audience's reaction every bit as much as Hitchcock himself. It's brilliant. Now, while Jaws' predominant position in the history of the blockbuster movie is is unquestionable. The film itself was not that expensive to make at the time, not in relation to the to the regular budgets of blockbusters today, which you know um, often go for a quarter of a billion dollars. And Jaws, when you look at it today, it it really bears little resemblance to these glossy confections that have that have followed it. In aesthetic terms, the film uses a naturalistic, even gritty style that is very much in keeping with the new Hollywood cinema of the late 60s and early 70s. The town of Amity is it feels like a very real place. And the character of Chief Brody and his family and the towns, his fellow townspeople, they also feel very real. N- not a superhero among them. So the approach to character and setting here really emphasizes the reality of things, the verisimilitude. For example, in using real settings, shooting on location, um, where was it that Jaws was shot? Uh, it was shot in Massachusetts. Um, very famous place. Forgive me, it's escaping me for the moment. Um, but it is very much a real place. Um, and not a lot of special effects involved. Not a lot of sets had to be built. Um, that will all come later. 
beginning with his next film. But in Jaws, it's all very natural, all very, all very, all very real, a very real place in time, despite its monster movie trappings. And when you think about it, it might be because of that reality that Jaws is, in fact, so scary. It doesn't really have any of the supernatural aspects of the typical monster movie. And that really serves the power of the film in making it that much more scary. Another thing that contributes to the verisimilitude of the film is that so many of the supporting roles were filled with genuine locals. And that's a long way from the superhero blockbusters of our current era. I mean, dialogue, for example, unfolds in, in long takes wherever possible. And for the most part, it, it, it feels very, very real. Um, there's also a very richly layered sound mix used throughout the film in which characters kind of speak over each other, which also contributes to the reality of the situation, just as a, as a real dialogue might. People don't always finish their sentences. Sometimes people cut them off. Some people, sometimes people finish other people's sentences for them. That's the sort of thing that I mean. And so, oh, there's also a, a, a lot of background conversation too, especially on the island um, before the film begins to center on the three central characters of um, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw. And that all serves the, the atmosphere and the exposition of the movie to contribute to the greater reality of it and to make it ultimately that much more frightening and even heroic by the end. I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here. Um, the actors, with the notable exception of Robert Shaw, who of course plays uh, Quint, the uh, shark hunter, they, they too favor a very naturalistic style um, with, with many scenes be benefiting from, from moments of improvised um, um, dialogue as well. So it all, it all feels mostly very naturalistic, inviting, inviting us, the audience, to share in the reality experienced by the characters of the film. So we really feel invested in Chief Brody. We really feel invested in these characters. They, we feel like we know them. We feel almost as if they were a part of the family. And so as a result, Jaws has a dramatic integrity about it with very finely realized characters that is unusual for genre cinema before or since. You don't get that in the typical monster movie. And you don't get that in contemporary, to my mind, superhero films either. That's the genius of Spielberg. You know, he, um, along with George Lucas of Star Wars fame, he... He has often been accused of dumbing down Hollywood after the supposed serious adult-oriented years of filmmaking that came in the late 60s and early 70s. But, and I'm thinking here of films like Chinatown, the Godfather films, um, so many great films from Robert Altman, um, films that were grounded very clearly in a very everyday reality. But 
as I think I've, I've made clear here, Jaws really is very much an extension of that, despite its, um, its trappings of the monster movie. So, in retrospect, I think it might be more fair to say of a film like Jaws that instead of dumbing down Hollywood, it really set a benchmark for what Hollywood blockbuster quality can be. And unfortunately, it, 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 it's rarely been matched since its release all the way back in 1975. Now, the success of Jaws, the great financial as well as artistic success of Jaws, gave Spielberg great clout, as they say in Hollywood. It had only been his second theatrical feature. And before Sugarland Express in 1974, he had, he had really only been a director of a few TV episodes in the late 60s and early 70s, TV episodes of Columbo, Night Gallery, and Marcus Welby, MD, for the most part, as well as a few TV movies, most notably the highly suspenseful duel with Dennis Weaver in 1971. And, and that, that was really his calling card in Hollywood. In fact, as, as a boy, I have vague memories of watching Duel as a TV movie um, on a weekday night in 1971, although perhaps it was repeated um, later in the decade. I'm, I'm really not quite sure. So to some extent, my, my, my journey as a film fan, as a film buff, as a film fanatic, really parallels the career of Steven Spielberg as well. And I, I hope that will, um, I hope to convey that in this series, um, um, to come. Now, Spielberg's follow-up film to Jaws is, is one of my favorites. Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, made in, in 1977. It was his first film as a hot director in Hollywood. And really, at the time, they did not come hotter. Its narrative sweep and its visual splendor is a testament to the fact, I think, that he, he really wanted to make an impact as a director. Now, with Jaws, he had been a hired hand. And it, it, however accomplished, it's, it's something less than a highly personal project. But I think Close Encounters of the Third Kind is more clearly a much more personal project for Spielberg at the time. And I think it's because of that newfound clout that he had in Hollywood that he was able to make it on his terms. One thing particularly of note with Close Encounters, certainly maybe the first thing of note, um, and there are many, um, are the special effects. But however frequently and brilliantly used they are in Close Encounters, they are never an end in themselves, and rarely so in any of his subsequent films. They are there, I think, primarily to convey that sense of awe and amazement that I spoke about, especially and so effectively in this film at the vastness and strangeness of the world outside 
our small, particular spot in the universe. Especially as events unfold within the story. I mean, Close Encounters, it, it certainly prioritizes wonder over action, even over storytelling itself. That's the crucial takeaway from the film. The reason I think those of us who love the movie respond to it so acutely as we do. But what makes it so effective, I think, is that the sense of wonder that we, that we apprehend is very much grounded in a very real world, just like the world of Jaws. A domestic world, a world of family and friends that we might recognize. In Close Encounters, Spielberg, I think, takes that even further and provides an almost documentary-like eye for the real-world details of Richard Dreyfuss's character, Roy Neary, particularly those of his troubled home life. And it's not a rosy picture. Dreyfus, Roy's relationship with his wife's character, Ronnie, played, played in the film by Terry Garr, is very much a rocky relationship and disintegrates as the film progresses. Now, that's something you don't often see in summer blockbuster films to come. And in fact, it, it really becomes the point upon which Roy begins a kind of spiritual quest after encountering his very close encounter of a UFO sighting. And it's, it's at that point that his marriage begins to disintegrate. And it's because the Dreyfus character is in this very real, very palpable and emotional situation that we come to feel so strongly for him as we do. And feel so acutely as we do in that sense of wonder reflected back at us in the audience as we watch him progress throughout the film. Now, the escapist impulse in Spielberg's work is perhaps obvious on the surface. The, the surface um, that he had so much been criticized for. But as I think I'm indicating here, under the surface of his work, there's a lot going on and a lot that's very real and a lot that has very real adult concerns. So when I say the escapism here is given real meaning by Spielberg's attention to detail, real world detail in Close Encounters, this is what I mean. And this is what Scheider's character of Roy Neary is escaping from a dull, mundane existence, and very much one at the expense of his family. 
Again, these are not typical concerns of a supposed light summer Hollywood blockbuster film, but all the more brilliant for it. You know, Steven Spielberg once said to Time magazine that his own most characteristic image can be found in the famous scene in the film of Close Encounters of a child peering through an open doorway at night with bright light flooding in from an alien spaceship just beyond the doorway and suggesting the awesome mystery of what lies outside that child's family home. The strong backlighting here really turns up in many later Spielberg films, but never to greater effect than it does in Close Encounters. Uh, And we will see it again in this movie as well, not least um, near the conclusion when the aliens walk out of the, literally walk out of the light being emanated from their mothership. but, but there are many, many other highly memorable examples as this, um, as in the scene to come in the movie E.T. when the spaceship door filled with light um, opens very similarly as to the scene at the conclusion of Close Encounters. But, but there are many, many such examples um, to come. You know, Another thing that um, was often said about Steven Spielberg, almost always disparagingly, was that he was the consummate 1980s Ronald Reagan-era filmmaker, giving voice to a sense of optimism in America and by extension in the world that had been almost entirely missing in Hollywood filmmaking in the 10 years preceding Jaws. That had been an era that, that was very much reflecting the traumas of Watergate, racial strife, and the Vietnam War, among other things. So you might think it's strange that Spielberg should be, dis- be disparaged for um, his bringing a sense a new sense of optimism to Hollywood filmmaking, but that's what he does. Despite what I've said about this, this um, somewhat depressing real-world background to the Roy Neary character, because, of course, ultimately what happens in Close Encounters is a kind of transcendence that this Roy Neary character um, achieves in his spiritual quest to come again in contact, a closer contact with the aliens that he had so briefly encountered in the middle of the film. It's that transcendence that he reaches by the end of the film, and which is almost a kind of spiritual apotheosis. And it's that, it's that 
it's that, that awesomeness that both we and the audience and the film itself glories in by its conclusion. But with Close Encounters in 1977, there is this very palpable sense of optimism that permeates the world, despite our, however much our own personal situations uh, may not be um, particularly great. This is a world where aliens visiting Earth are initially terrifying, as in most science fiction films, but ultimately here quite wondrous and unthreatening they are. In Spielberg, the light source that initially might thought to have been quite threatening to that child that opens the family door um, to see the light shining in from the spacecraft outside, but it, it's not. Ultimately, it's quite benign, even upbeat carrying, conveying with it a sense of an escape from our own particular, however grim they might be, personal circumstances, which is the case with the Richard Dreyfus Roy Neary character in the film. Um, and this is very different from, from so many other um, films of the period where, you know, darkness usually conceals danger. Here it conceals a kind of beneficence. So the, this optimistic temperament, um, this, this optimistic orientation, I would say, in the films of Spielberg, is one that he himself is quite aware of um, and once shared a particularly interesting anecdote about growing up in Phoenix, Arizona, um, an anecdote about that, that really is kind of a, almost a kind of foundation myth for him in, um, you know, explaining this, this formative experience as he does. And I'm going to quote here. My dad took me out to see a meteor shower when I was a little, little kid. And it was scary for me because he woke up in the middle of the night. He woke me up in the middle of the night. My heart was beating. I didn't know what he wanted to do. He wouldn't tell me. And he put me in the car and we went off and I saw all these people lying on blankets, looking up at the sky. And my dad spread out a blanket. We laid down and looked up at the sky. And I saw for the first time all these meteors. What scared me was being awakened in the middle of the night and taken somewhere without being told where. But what didn't scare me, and in fact was quite soothing, was watching this cosmic meteor shower. And I think from that moment on, I never looked at the sky and thought it was a bad place. End quote. Wow. In that very statement, I think you can find the genesis of Close Encounters itself and really the quite awesomeness that occurs in so many of Spielberg's best movies and which really captures um, the spirit of his films, I think. That... that very keen apprehension of a wondrous world outside our own immediate circumstances. And you can really find important elements of this anecdote reflected throughout his career, and even in movies and television um, that 
are really more or less um, based on his work. I mean, I'm thinking here of the movie Super 8, which is um, pretty much a direct <laughs> homage to Spielberg, as is the Netflix series Stranger Things, another um, another work which is really kind of a nostalgic throwback to Spielberg films of the 70s and in the 80s, um, which I'm about to get into. Both, both, you know, his sense of wonder, but also his sense of hope, which is something um, that he is really bringing to Hollywood cinema in the late 70s, um, which really hadn't been there, not entirely present in the, in the 10 years um, before him. You know, that impulse to uh, look up at the sky, which is so important to Close Encounters, and to dream of greater things, which um, the Dreyfus uh, character of Roy Neary is clearly doing um, in the movie. Um, but also, as we'll come to see, an identification with an adolescent's point of view, which we do get a glimpse of in Close Encounters through the, um, the POV shots of the, um, of the young child who is um, taken by the aliens, um, much to the, the terror of his mother, of course, um, who will form a kind of partnership with the uh, Roy Neary character in becoming obsessed in, in finding the aliens and, um, like the Neary character, will achieve her own kind of uh, transcendence by the end of the film. When the mothership arrives, it is the centerpiece of an utterly gorgeous sequence, and one that feels not just awe-inspiring, but strangely profound as well. I distinctly remember that's how I and my friends felt after seeing it for the first time in the summer of 1977. We felt like that character of Roy Neary, not understanding his journey necessarily, but understanding his encounter with the sublime. We didn't know why it was happening, how it happened, but somehow we felt profoundly moved by it. And this is what blockbuster filmmaking at its best is all about. Lifting us, the audience, out of our everyday worries and immersing us in a world of extraordinarily wondrous events. In doing this, Close Encounters of the Third Kind had changed before our very eyes into a different kind of movie. And its transformation, though we wouldn't have understood this at the time, is a very neat metaphor for the shifting preoccupations of American cinema. The early scenes in the movie have a definite affinity with the gritty working-class realities of the new Hollywood movies of earlier in the decade, while the conclusion of Close Encounters is pure 1980s special effects blockbuster extravaganza to come. At this point, I should acknowledge the work of Stephen Rowley, whose director profile in the online journal Senses of Cinema has contributed so much to my comments here. Thank you, Stephen. Now, 
I've said that Jaws launched the era of the summer blockbuster, and that's true, and that Close Encounters followed up and expanded upon that movie two years later, and that Spielberg's work has really shaped our love of all-out, often ridiculously expensive summer fun rides, probably more so than any other single filmmaker, even when, even when there was so much more going on under the surface of his summer fun rides. Yet, it really was the release of George Lucas' Star Wars, and we can't overlook that, in the same summer as Close Encounters, that truly solidified this new concept of blockbuster cinema. But while Spielberg himself followed up Close Encounters with his first big-budget flop, the comedy misfire 1941 in the year of 1979, his succeeding film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which he made in collaboration with George Lucas, is a classic of the lighthearted action fantasy adventure genre, which is just so much fun and so full of deft comedic moments that it remains much loved. Almost 40 years after its release in the summer of 1981. You know, conceptually, Raiders of the Lost Ark is much more consistent with Star Wars than with Spielberg's earlier work, insofar as it reworks the basic Star Wars conceit of rejuvenating old serials, really very old-fashioned, even hokey, somewhat disreputable storylines into big-budget, state-of-the-art entertainment. And that very much remains the model that we live with in uh, today, with the superhero films that are that are really dominant in the marketplace um, and which themselves rejuvenate on a mammoth scale the comic books of old. It's really the same thing um, almost 40 years later. But in relation to his earlier work, Raiders of the Lost Ark definitely steps away from the world of real-life lived experience in which Spielberg's 70s movies are largely set. There is no progression here from the mundane, as with uh, Roy Neary's domestic life in Close Encounters, to the extraordinary arrival of something like The Mothership at the end of that film. Raiders of the Lost Ark itself starts big and finishes even bigger. And part of this movie's genius is that it doesn't just recuperate those those cheap, um, slightly disreputable old Saturday afternoon serials for children, but it brings other material into the mix, too. I'm thinking here of pulp novels, James Bond films, and what is Indiana Jones, but a kind of a James Bond figure. And I might add as an aside that apparently the producers of that series had turned down overtures from Spielberg himself to direct a James Bond film, um, much to their um, discredit, I would say. But um, Raiders also involves such elements as the paranormal, which for the first time in Spielberg... Um, and even at the very end, a, a touch of um, EC horror comics as, you know, in that sequence where the Nazis open the ark, unleashing the supernatural forces inside, which um, then, you know, proceed to make them melt, explode and burst into, the, into flame. Um, 
Raiders was was a huge commercial success. It's a whole lot of fun. Remains a whole lot of fun. But essentially, it demanded little of its audience and was mostly devoid. Mostly, I say. Not entirely, for sure. Of that kind of um, transcendence present at the end of Close Encounters. Spielberg's next film would also be a huge hit, too. But unlike Raiders, it was a much more personal project and closer in kind to Close Encounters than to Raiders of the Lost Ark. In 1982, I think it can be said that Spielberg, the entertainer, think of Jaws, think of Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Spielberg, the artist, think of Close Encounters, came most fully together in one film. And that result was E.T., The Extraterrestrial, which is truly a remarkable fusion of mass appeal and stylistic mastery. Indeed, it is perhaps his most sincere and heartfelt film. Despite its vast commercial success. And I remember waiting in an extremely long lineup in the summer of 1982 in order to see it. So I can testify to just how popular it was and what a phenomenon it was when it came out. I also recall that Spielberg's fascination with childhood was was really quite disparaged by some film critics as a supposed sign of immaturity, which is, you know, not only snide, but also, when you think about it, a little sad. Instead, his movie E.T. is really a reminder that there are few more interesting subjects than childhood, I would say. And certainly few subjects more difficult to convey accurately to an adult audience. I mean, arguably no one has ever directed young actors as consistently well as Steven Spielberg. And in E.T., he, he, he creates an uncannily real portrayal of their lives. I mean, not the lives uh, um, specifically of the, uh, the actors involved, but of the characters, you know, the preteen characters that they are portraying. Indeed, E.T. works so well, not because of any science fiction extravaganza going on, but because its intimate portrayal of the world of its child protagonists would be an interesting film, even without E.T. the alien in himself. You know, like Close Encounters, E.T. is set in a slightly bleak, suburban location, on the fringes of Los Angeles here, with indistinguishable houses dotted along meandering streets. And this is all very evident to us as adults in watching E.T., but we, we also get to see this world from a child's point of view, in which building sites become BMX tracks, and the edge of the subdivision itself becomes an enchanted wood full of magical possibilities. And it is this connection with the feel of childhood that gives E.T. its special charm, I think. And to that extent, it is very similar to Close Encounters, but with children instead of adult characters at the center. Though, of course, there is an important child character in Close Encounters as well. Nevertheless, the larger change here makes all the difference, as the children's perspective in E.T. offers an alternative to the malaise 
that has so badly affected Richard Dreyfuss' central character of Roy Neary in Close Encounters. And that's so important, I think, in, in really getting the relationship between both films and under the surface of what is going on in Spielberg and what makes the films so individually effective. I think it's also interesting that when offered the choice to leave with E.T., the young hero of Elliot in the movie reverses the decision of Roy Neary at the end of Close Encounters and chooses to stay with his family. Remember? Once again, the bleakness of suburbia is evoked, but this time the antidote is not abandonment but the embrace of the possibilities for wonder that children remember, but adults too often forget. And few films are as in touch with those possibilities as E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Certainly one of the best-remembered scenes in the film takes place midway through it when Elliot and his new alien friend go for a bike ride. I'm sure you remember this if you've seen the film. A bike ride that it turns out E.T. is somehow able to take skywards, launching the bike and Elliot into the heavens and above the treetops. It's a magical sequence that almost serves as that I, the, the dictionary definition of the word soaring. And it culminates with the iconic, utterly gorgeous scene of the bike's silhouette as it crosses a low-lying moon. But Spielberg's genius here isn't just with the poetry of the moment, it's with, with undercutting it, really, and the choice to end the scene with a joke. Do you remember when Elliot pleads, please don't crash, just before they do exactly that? And, and that, that is how this scene in particular, but Spielberg in general, is able to convey a kind of humanity. A feeling somehow for what it means to be alive, to live a real flesh-and-blood existence, despite the more fantastical elements of the plot. Okay, that's it, folks. I'm going to draw a conclusion here to part one of my two-part series on the films of Steven Spielberg. Um, things are running a little long. Please join me, however, in two weeks' time when I will present part two, in which I promise to be a little less meandering in discussing the next 40 years of this great filmmaker's career and even look forward to his upcoming remake of West Side Story. You've been listening to Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. And remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codestluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. Oh, and speaking of remembering, I've just recalled that it was Martha's Vineyard where Jaws was filmed. Okay, all the best. Happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Coat St. Luke Podcast. Thanks for listening today. Thank you to our guests and speakers today. My name is Daryl Levine. Have a great day.